Welcome to the Thoracic Oncology Group of Australasia podcast series. I am Jenny Lee and I'm a medical oncologist at Chris O'Brien Lifehouse. In this podcast, we will be discussing treatment considerations in outfusion oncogene positive non-small cell lung cancer. I'm joined today by Professor Nick Pavlakis, President of the Thoracic Oncology Group of Australasia and medical oncologist at Royal North Shore Hospital, and Lisa Briggs, a stage four lung cancer survivor, author, osteopath, and exercise physiologist. Before we start, thank you, Pfizer, for sponsoring this podcast. First question I wanted to ask Nick, can you provide us with a quick update on what has happened in the first line setting since Crizotinib in out-positive lung cancer? Now, the main changes in the first line setting since Crizotinib have been the evolution and clinical evidence in support of next-generation drugs which is superior to crizotinib. First, we had seritinib, but that was studied against chemotherapy, and subsequently, electinib, brigatinib, and then more recently, lulapnib, all of whom had positive results in phase three trials showing superiority in clinical outcomes such as progression-free survival and also in reduction in incidence of brain metastases. And these have been major leaps forward. All of these drugs were studied in refractory setting first and then have come all forward. So we have a, an abundance of choice now in the first line setting. So what considerations do you make when choosing TKIs with this abundance of choice that we have? We don't have any comparative data to help us make the decision between the drugs. Indirectly, all the drugs, however, were compared with crizotinib. So all we can do is look at across the different trials. The hazard ratios benefit with progression-free survival with Electinib and brigatinib are quite similar. And the one that stands out, obviously, with a much greater magnitude of benefit in the hazard ratio versus crizotinib is lorlatinib. So immediately that strikes us as saying, look, the benefit does appear to be stronger doing a comparison across the trials. Then it's not a direct comparison, but you know that lends us to think maybe lorlatinib, we know, has certainly more powerful action against many of the different kinase domain mutations. A lot of that data on lalatinib was developed when people were on second generation and other drugs because the likelihood of developing a kinase domain mutation is higher when you're on a second generation drug, not crizotinib. Having said that, when I see a patient in front of me, and I've had to make this choice, I've prescribed lalatinib, I've prescribed lalatinib, and I've actually prescribed begatinib. And I'll tell you what's made me think of the difference between the choices. The individual patient in front of me, their background comorbidities, and I guess comes down to toxicity preferences, which patients would cope best with particular toxicities unique to the different drugs. There's the concept of pill burden with electinib. You've got eight tablets a day, only one tablet with lalatinib. And then there's characteristics of the disease. Now, mostly that's around the presence or absence of brain metastases, the age of the patients, the impact that disease in the brain would have on them, et cetera. Fortunately, all three drugs show a reduction in incidence of development of new metastases and also control of CNS metastases. But lolatinib certainly does have the best hazard ratio in reduction in risk of CNS metastases across the drugs. So if a patient's well enough and is willing to undertake the, the different toxicities, I'll probably prescribe lorlatinib as I've started to do. Uh, however, there's a, I won't give the details of the case, but there was a case today that I prescribed electinib for because I think, and we rationalised it together with the patient that in their particular case, it was a better choice of first drug. Recognising, of course, that we can access lorlatinib subsequently if we monitor our patients carefully, if we've made the choice to use one of the other agents 
So I hope that's helped. I don't think it's black and white, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you mentioned brain metastasis. Do you screen all your patients with an MRI brain at baseline? I mean, you sort of mentioned that having brain meds, you might be leaning towards lolatinine, for example. Do you ever combine local treatment like surgery and radiation for symptomatic brain meds, given these agents are very active in the brain already? Yeah, well, first thing to say about brain metastasis is that Alcott has a, a tropism for brain metastasis. We know up to 75% plus of patients will develop brain metastasis in their lifetime. So I always screen patients with uh, MRI at baseline. And I also do so as we go along the journey. Once I've demonstrated response, if there's brain metastasis present at baseline, then there will be regular uh, MR imaging of the brain as part of the follow-up. If there weren't any, you still have to factor in uh, brain metastases screening at some point down the track, but you probably don't need to do it as frequently. And that's an arbitrary decision as to how often, but if you look at the clinical trials, the time to development of brain metastases, that's roughly how I tend to choose the frequency of my scanning. And I prefer MRI because it picks up more detail, but there may be some patients who are claustrophobic and you limit the use of the MRI, but you can use a you know, good quality contrast enhanced CT scan. Second, I work in a department that has a very strong interest in uh, stereotactic, uh, stereotactic body radiotherapy, SBRT. We've definitely partnered with my radiation oncology colleagues on many a patient to intervene when, when necessary to manage either isolated oligoprogressive metastases in the brain as an alternative to, to neurosurgery, particularly if the lesions are very small and you capture them early. So very, very much just a partnership. We discuss our cases together. And often if a patient has brain metastases, the radiation oncologist in our department will be involved in their follow-up at some point as well so that we can both keep an eye on the trajectory or evolution of the disease. Of course, if it's in remission, then it just relies on me until something changes. Yeah. I mean, I might address the next question to Lisa, who's a stage four lung cancer survivor. No doubt we're quite sport with choice in terms of number of agents for first-line setting. Um, what are your thoughts, Lisa? What is your preference? And how much do you as a patient want to be involved in the decision-making? Yeah, so I, I mean, when I think back to 2014 and my very first decision of what drug would I take, there was very limited options. It was either crizotinib or it was serotonib on clinical trial. And I went on clinical trial. But now we have, you know, a plethora of drugs available to us. I still think there's that, uh, opportunity to start at a second generation inhibitor only for the the purpose that it might actually help prolong you know the progression free survival when you look at it and you you know have the concept of weeding the garden as we so used to call it you know you can go from second generation inhibitor to third generation inhibitor and then potentially hopefully there's something after that i just think you know, being careful of not using up all your options straight away is something that I know I would consider if I was looking at needing to commence treatment. I think we sort of brushed upon disease progression or acquired resistance on these agents. We talked about oligometastatic progression, which I think we all agree agree, you know, there may be a role for sort of targeted local treatment for these select cases. But on progression, where we do have to change treatment, how much emphasis are we putting on doing repeat biopsies to look for resistance mechanisms? Does that sort of dictate what agents you choose as second line? So I might ask Nick to answer this question first. 
Thank you, Jenny. Yeah, look, I think resistance is a very important area to understand properly because it's not black and white. There is a spectrum of uh, mechanisms of resistance. So there's many different type forms of resistance, but the most common resistance to TKIs is what's called kinase domain mutations, and that's to do with the interaction of the drug, the molecular level binding level with the target, the ALK rearrangement. And we know that different drugs have different sensitivities against certain types of resistance mutations. And there's one particular one that's commonly seen after, say, electinib, brigatinib, and seritinib, and that's called G1202R, for which lorlatinib is very active. So we also know that there are other escape mechanisms when you've been on drugs for a very long time. In our study, the Octanate study, we found she found MET mutations and amplifications also occur. And our Octanate study is alternating crizotinib, which is a MET inhibitor, versus uh, with with uh, lolatinib. And then you can get non-ALK-based mutations besides the MET amplifications. You can get very rarely other oncogenes. Uh, these are rare, like EGFR and also small cell. But they're very rare in ALK. So I think it's really important when someone shows progression, if it's a solitary side of progression and you can treat that with SBRT, fantastic, because the rest of the disease is stable, patients enjoying good quality of life on drug, you don't need to change anything. But if there's multi-site progression, that to me is a sign of systemic failure. And I'd be worried that we've got now wholesale resistance and you need to find out why. And we've been lucky, we've been involved in an observational study with circulating tumor DNA. It's the same assay that we use in the alternate trial. It's been quite informative for us. And we found a, quite a spectrum and quite an interesting outline of what happens to patients when they progress. And some of them can partner with other mutations like P53, a PR3 kinase. And what you do then is you give chemotherapy. You repeat the assay, you find the outcome mutation remains, but the others have gone and you get back onto targeted therapy. Now, the trouble is you can't always get an assay that's going to show you a result in the blood. And the other trouble is you can't always get a biopsy from tissue. Blood is certainly easier than tissue. But if you don't get the answer in blood and you can get tissue, I would try to get tissue. And uh, recently I had another example of a patient that we were going to offer SBRT, but it was possible to remove that section of tumor. It was removed, and we found a G102R mutation. So now I've changed them to patient from their previous second-generation TKI to lolatinib. So I think we need to do that, and that's the most effective way to get most out of your drugs. Yeah, no, for sure. And I guess liquid biopsy also has that added advantage that it can potentially overcome tumor heterogeneity. I think Lisa is also involved in quite exciting work around this space. Can you sort of give us a bit of a summary on that? Yeah, so Dr. Melinda Itchens from Royal North Shore, she is running a clinical trial called Dynamalk. And it's basically that. It's using liquid biopsies to determine resistance mutations. It's a biopsy at the beginning of treatment, three months later, and then 18 months later or on progression with the idea that it will give, you know, really meaningful information to both the clinician and the patient. The way that the trial was designed, though, was that it had one arm for the newly diagnosed patients and a group of consumers asked whether or not it would be possible to also include a secondary arm for the pre-treated population so that it was expanding access to patients who were already on treatment, have progressed and want to know more about their particular type of lung cancer. So at the moment, we're doing some crowdfunding to try and support that trial for the second arm. 
And we're currently looking for, you know, support of that from clinicians. So for enrollment, but also if there is anyone that's happy to provide any donations, there's opportunity available there through TOGA. So if anyone wants to help support and drive, you know, that arm of the trial, we'd really appreciate it because it is all driven by consumers, that that arm. And we're working really hard on the project to try and help improve opportunities for patients and then hopefully allow it to become standard of care. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing some of the research and clinical trials that you as a consumer has been involved in. I think it's absolutely invaluable for us clinicians and researchers to get an understanding of what is important to the patients that we're treating. I think this is a really exciting study and really looking forward to the outcome. While I've got you, I think, can you maybe talk about some of the side effects you've had so far? How are they managed? Were there any potential side effects that you thought may be unacceptable to you as a patient? Well, on serotonin, when I was on the first drug, it was really severe abdominal cramping. It could last for up to two hours and that was debilitating. I, I found that probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to deal with. And I was on the drug for three years. I never actually found anything to help with that. It was no matter what dose of treatment I was on, it still was there. And that was horrible. I had, you know, a lot of GI toxicities with serotonin. Then when I moved to electinib, it was a lot of muscle aches and pains. So the myalgia feeling just like, you know, I'd go for a run. I'm a really athletic person. I'd like to exercise. And one day I went for a run after starting electinib and I literally went around the block and it's not a big block. And by the time I got to the end of the block, I felt like I'd almost run a marathon. You know, that's how sore my legs were. So that was probably one of the main things along with sun sensitivity that was quite significant on electinib. And then with lalatinib, it's been a lot of psychological and mood changes, which are really, they're probably, cramping was really difficult to deal with, but you could close the doors. I think when mood, when it's your mood and it's the interactions with the people around you, that's when it becomes problematic, not just for you, but for others. So I know with serotonin, we used to close the door, the kids would never see me, they wouldn't know what was happening. But when it's mood and changes in psychology that, you know, is visible to them, then it can have more of an impact. My speech has changed since being on the Latin Ib. I find that sometimes I can't find my words. And, you know, I look at all those things, though, as a sign of, well, the drug must be getting into my brain. <laughs> it must be working. And that's the whole point, you know, of being on an inhibitor that goes into your brain. So I guess when it comes to toxicities, though, it's it's a balance, yeah? And to make decisions on treatments, yes, you want to have a really good quality of life. And I would say generally I've had a good quality of life on all of them. I think it's how you manage the toxicities that's really important. And I know that when you have good alternative approaches to management, whether that be through alternative drugs that are available on the market or, you know, speaking to other patients who are going through it, they've always got ways, you know, that they've managed and that can help you. So I find connecting with other people can really help with the management of symptoms that, that you're dealing with. But obviously talking with the doctor, sometimes a dose reduction can help as well. Temporarily, I think Nick 
can touch on that. They're the sorts of things I'll be managing. Thank you, Lisa, for sharing some of your insight, being on quite a few of these TKSIs in the past and highlighting some of your side effects. I think this would be very helpful for both the clinicians and patients and patient families listening. I might ask the doctor next. So Indigo, what are some of the common side effects and how would you manage these? Well, it's interesting to listen to Lisa's own personal experience because the myalgias that she and I, that she mentions, I've actually only ever seen with brigatinib, not with not with lolatinib. But what it demonstrates is throughout the list of toxicities that can occur, that patients may only get one or two that become troublesome to them, and that the rest aren't. And that's what it comes down to. It's all about individualization. When I talk to a patient about lolatinib, the side effects I normally discuss in anticipation of their concerns are the neurocognitive, as Lisa's alluded to. Hypercholesterolemia is another one. doesn't result in any clinical consequences, but does worry some people, and we end up managing that with the torvastatin. The neurocognitive ones, I try dose interruption when you stop the drug for four days, it's four half-lives. And then if, it, if the patient's trying to look, it is affecting them, for example, if they're working and they can't function, then you consider dose reduction, one-level dose reduction. Brigatinib has those myalgias, there's a mild gastrointestinal toxicity. I've found it quite tolerable. Most people won't have had much experience with it because I, we ran a few trials with Brigatinib and so we're very used to it. And that similarly has a, enough drug choice to adjust, but I've not had to dose reduce Brigatinib outside of the clinical trial. And then Electinib, generally also, I haven't had to dose reduce that much very well, although I have had to select patients for some rare serious adverse events such as cytopenia and rash, which are quite, if you look at the list of probability of them occurring, it's quite low because most people aren't bothered by the low-grade toxicities that occur with electinib and brigatinib, whereas a low-grade neurocognitive where it affects your function, your concentration may be important if with lolatinib. So it's, it's how the patient values the side effect that dictates your actions. And the rule of thumb would be dose interruption or dose reduction if required, and trying to keep the patient on the drug when it works. And then finally, as Lisa said, we've got a choice. If you reach an endpoint, you can't adjust the drug accordingly to make it tolerable, you can switch. I was going to say, and then in terms of, of choice, if you were to say to me though, Nick, hey, you know, here here is your uh, genomic sequencing, it, it is showing that you are most likely to respond to this drug I don't care what the side effects are. If it's going to help my cancer, that's my priority. And I think that's what we also need to remember. When we have information that helps to drive the decision-making, patients are more acceptable of the outcome. And similarly, if we do need an alternative drug to help with the side effects of the drug we're on, and we know that that carries also side effects, we're also willing to accept it if we know that the cancer is going to be kept stable or, you know, even. Yeah, no, thank you for your insight. That's that's really important. And I just wanted to ask one last question regarding the side effects. What are your thoughts about some of the pulmonary toxicity associated with brigatinib? I mean, if we have a similar drug without the associated pulmonary toxicity, uh, what makes you choose one over the other? Uh, well, with brigatinib, the pulmonary toxicity was observed in the phase two trial. And it was discovered that starting at 90 milligrams for a week and actually dose escalating to 180 circumvented that. I don't, I've, and then we, we ran the first line trial, the phase three trial, and we saw no pulmonary toxicity. And in clinical practice, I've not observed that either. In fact, that's how the drug is marketed. You get 90 milligrams for the first week and then you escalate to 180. So whilst it was a, 
an important toxicity at an early development of the drug. I think in the, in the in the wash at the end, as we learn more about the drug, it's not become a big problem. Just before we finish off, Nick, would you be able to tell us a bit more about some of the drugs in the pipeline and a few promising clinical trials? Thanks, Jenny. So we've actually started a new valent trial, Royal Northshore Hospital. New valent is one of the companies that has a new, I uh, would, would argue, fourth generation TKI for um, patients on our and it's got a similarly designed trial to the early early lorlatinib trial where it has a number of cohorts we're allowing for the, where you are at in the journey so we're very excited about that because you know LARC has been in treatments have been available for 10 years and there will be some patients that will be seeking other options and there's another company called TPX that is running trials also within Australia and it also has a fourth generation TKI Great. Thank you for that information. I think we might wrap up here. This has been a really informative and amazing discussion today. Before we finish, I'd like to thank Pfizer for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to the audience for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why don't you consider joining TOGA so you don't miss out on a range of member benefits, including our newsletter and discounts on events. Please go to www.thoraciconcology.org.au slash membership to find out more. You can download this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.